<laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, great job, worship band. You really got us up and excited this morning, so uh, very thankful for that. All right, uh, this morning we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, marks of a committed Christian today from uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 uh, through 31. Uh, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do thank you. Uh, we thank you coming off uh, Resurrection Sunday for the gift of your son, uh, for the death that he died to pay for our sins on the cross, and the fact that you raised him from the dead means that you were satisfied with his sacrifice, and that when we believe in him, Lord, we get to follow him into heaven eternally with you, Lord, and we're so thankful for your word. And this morning, Lord, as we take a look at uh, some of the marks uh, of a committed Christian, we pray that you would be pleased with our worship of you this morning, Lord. Anoint these words and uh, let them not return to you void, Lord, but let them uh, serve the purpose for which you have planned them. We thank you for all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you remember when you all first met your wife? Uh, Molly and I met when uh, we were in high school, but we don't exactly remember when because we kind of met in high school and our paths kind of crossed and somehow we ended up in the same circle of friends and, and then we knew each other and uh, uh, we became friends. And it wasn't until years later when I was about 24 years old and Molly was 21 uh, that we actually started to date. And uh, you folks may find this hard to believe, but at 24 years old, I was kind of an unpolished mess. Uh, and I knew that if there were things about uh, me uh, that Molly was going to find attractive and might want to make a husband out of me, that then, then there were some things about me uh, that were going to have to change. I had met someone special uh, and uh, recognized who she was in my life, and I wanted uh, to make some changes. Now, for, for some of you folks, you didn't date your wives uh, before, or uh, know your wives before you started dating them. You just met them and then decided that you'd like to have a dating relationship with them. And uh, for you husbands, uh, you find this girl and you really like her, and now you've got to figure out how you're going to trick her into thinking uh, that you're worthy of her and, and that you're the one. And so uh, you, uh, you start thinking about how you're going to do that. And so uh, you become a little more responsible, and you wear nicer clothes maybe, and you maybe shower a little more often, and uh, you do all kinds of things to impress this girl and make her think uh, that, that she is the one or that you're the one for her. Uh, so it's interesting, though, that, that as you're going through that process over time, as you're courting uh, this girl who you think could be the one, that you actually do change. Uh, you're not just putting on a front anymore. Uh, you're willing to forsake your friends to be with her. Uh, you really want to treat her well. Uh, you become uh, more responsible uh, at, in certain things. And so you met someone special, and your life was changed by it. And as you know, last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but we, of course, preach the resurrection here every Sunday, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as we said last week, the only explanation for the changed lives of these apostles was that they had seen the risen Jesus Christ, and, and they had met someone special again after he, was, after he was crucified. They had met him again. They had met him. They realized at that point... Uh, that he was indeed special, uh, and their lives had changed. And they went from scared men hiding in an upper room uh, for fear of the Jews and the Romans and what might happen to them, uh, to guys who went out proclaiming the gospel to Jews and, and Jewish authorities, uh, not even worried about their own lives, but, but willing to risk their lives. And that's just what Jesus charged them to do 
when he gave them the Great Commission, right? The last thing he said to them before he ascended, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. I heard a statistic uh, from a Barna study this week. Barna is a Christian pollster, and he takes surveys of, of, uh, of uh, Christians about their opinions about certain things, and the world about their opinions on Christianity. And, and what he said was that there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world, which seems like a lot, but, but of those, uh, 51% could not uh, say uh, what the Great Commission is. Uh, 34% had heard of it, but were not able to articulate in any meaningful way what the, what the Great Commission is. Uh, 17% uh, could articulate it, they knew what it was, but uh, even a, a very small fraction of those people were actually doing anything to further or fulfill uh, the Great Commission. And so they identified as Christians, but they really hadn't committed their lives uh, to Christ. And, and so that's kind of a sad thing, 2.2 billion Christians, but maybe 5 to 10% of them, if that, are actually doing anything to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, you'll know a committed disciple of Christ by certain marks that distinguish them, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, committed Christians know Christ, and they are changed. And so we'll look at some of the marks of the committed Christian. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 to 31, we'll start looking at some of these marks. And the first mark of a committed Christian is that a, a committed Christian encourages other believers. So uh, from verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now remember, we're in this uh, rather long section of the book of Acts that started in chapter 3, uh, where Peter and John raised this uh, lame man uh, who had been lame from birth, and now he's able to walk. And and then they preached about it in Acts chapter 3. Uh, and then uh, they preached that to, to the regular Jews, but then the Jewish authorities came, and then they're preaching to the Jewish authorities. And so they find themselves arrested in Acts chapter 4 for preaching this message of the gospel, which the Jewish authorities did not appreciate. Uh, and so then they uh, find themselves in this trial against the mighty and manipulative Sanhedrin, uh, who are out to stop this preaching uh, of the Lord Jesus. And, and so they're inside this, this room uh, where this trial is ongoing. And, and everybody outside the room, all their friends and family, have no idea what's going on inside. They're probably worried that they're not going to survive this trial. And I bet from what we've seen in the early chapters of the book of Acts that these friends and family and other disciples, uh, what do you think they were doing? I think they were probably what? Praying. Yeah, that's what we've seen in early chapters of Acts was that these guys were all praying. Uh, they had no idea that Peter and John were going to confound the Sanhedrin with their words that were given by the Holy Spirit. And they were probably worried sick to death and all they could do was wait and to pray. And so I think that's what they were doing. You know, if you follow the NCAA basketball tournament like I do, you know that uh, in the history of this tournament, a number 16 seed had never beaten a number one seed uh, until this year. That is a monumental upset for that to happen. And this year, uh, little University of Maryland at Baltimore County uh, took down mighty number one Virginia in the biggest NCAA tournament upset of all time. Now, I don't know if Peter and John's victory was on that level over the Sanhedrin, but it was a huge upset for them to beat uh, the Sanhedrin. They did not expect to be released, and, and so... 
you know, they go out and celebrate with their family and friends. And, and when God gives us a blessing, we should certainly rejoice in that blessing. But we should really use that blessing to encourage other believers. And I think that's why God blesses us to begin with. Uh, when Peter and John were released, they went back uh, to their people, to their friends, to their family, to their disciples, uh, those people who had been praying, to their family and friends, and they reported all that had happened. And what an amazing encouragement for their friends and for their family and the disciples. And we all need encouragement, don't we? Uh, is there anybody out there who's not going through something right now where you could use some encouragement? I don't see a single hand, right? We all need encouragement. And, and so it's wonderful when we get a blessing to go on and, and encourage somebody with that. At the end of our men's meeting each week, our Bible study that we have, we, we take prayer requests from individuals and, and uh, you know, we, we follow up with them in the, in the next week and, and find out how they're doing on that prayer request after we pray specifically for that thing. And I've just been so encouraged by the amount of times that I've been able to write PTL, uh, praise the Lord, in my prayer journal next to some request that was, was made just a week or two weeks before. Uh, it's an incredible thing to be encouraged uh, and to hear how God is working and answering prayer. It's, it's such a blessing. You know, as I went through the candidating process here, uh, there were lots of people uh, around the country, people that you will probably never meet, who were praying for me uh, and, and uh, seeking a positive outcome. And when I was called to this uh, ministry, uh, so many people around the country were blessed because of the blessing that you bestowed on me by calling me. And so uh, it, it's a wonderful thing when we are blessed to go about sharing our blessings with other people. And it's a great encouragement. And, and so when we receive a blessing, uh, others are encouraged by it. And, and, and why is that? Well, it's because we are not in this alone, right? We're all part of a body. We're part of a body of believers that is called the church, it's a spiritual organism, and, and we all are one body, and that's why Paul uses the metaphor of the body to describe the church. Uh, when we eat, our mouths uh, and our stomachs feel pleasure, and they feel full, but the whole body is nourished by that eating, and it's the same way in the church. When one of us receives a blessing and we share it, everybody is blessed, and, and so share your blessings. See the church as one body. Uh, know that other members are going to benefit indirectly from the direct blessing that God has bestowed on you. Uh, you're not bragging. You're, you're blessing other people, and, and someday they will be blessed, and they will share their blessings with you, and they won't be bragging. They'll be blessing you with the blessing they have received. So, so share your blessings. Encourage other believers. That's what a committed Christian does. Well, what do you think that Peter and John learned through this ordeal that they had with the trial with the Sanhedrin. Uh, I think they learned first that, that God's word is going to be opposed. Uh, the kingdom had not come in the way they thought it was going to come. And, and they knew certainly that, that God's word was opposed when they nailed Jesus to the cross. But now Jesus is resurrected and they said, is it at this time that you were going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know that time, but you have work to do. And as they go out to do that work, they are opposed on every side by these Jewish authorities. And so they realize now that, that this is God's work and God's work is going to be opposed. And so uh, they have a commission to go make disciples. Uh, the Sanhedrin wasn't going to go away. We're going to see them again in the next chapter, Acts chapter 5. Uh, and they're going to bring uh, even more threats uh, to these guys preaching the gospel. So they learn that, that God's word is going to be opposed. But secondly... They learned 
that God is sovereign in all that he does. And he's in control of everything. Even the words that they spoke to the Sanhedrin at their trial were given to them by the Holy Spirit at that very moment. And even the reaction of the Sanhedrin uh, was planned in advance by God so that these disciples would be released so they could go out and preach the gospel uh, some more. And, and because the Holy Spirit was at work, these men were able to achieve this wonderful victory over the Sanhedrin that they could never have done in their own power. And, and Peter and John's reunion with their friends was a great cause for worship and thanksgiving uh, and praise for his sovereignty. And that's what we see uh, in the next verses, verses 24 uh, through 28. And we'll see here that a committed Christian worships God. Let's read 424 to 28. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, a committed Christian worships God. The first way they worshiped God was as sovereign creator. When Peter and John reunited with their friends, the first thing they did was they worshiped God together. And here's that word that we've seen again and again in the book of Acts, this Greek word homothumadon, which means of one accord, in unity, to do something together. We've seen it over and over again, and they're doing it together here, lifting their voices to God uh, with one accord. And so they worshiped God as the creator of all that is. And that's the beauty of that first uh, verse, verse 24. They lifted their, their voices and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They worshiped God as creator of all that is. Uh, that's very unpopular preaching today, as you know. Because if there is a God who is the creator of all, that means that like it or not, we as his creatures are subject to him. And that's why the world holds on so tightly to evolution today, right? Uh, evolution teaches that a bolt of lightning or some electrical charge struck the primordial ooze and, and somehow single-celled organisms were born out of that uh, lightning strike and single-cell organisms evolved into people over millions and millions of years of time. And, and that means that there is no creator. And if there's no creator, then there's no universal truth that we all have to abide by. And, we're free to make our own decisions, free to live by our own subjective truth that we invent. Uh, and that's because there's no higher universal truth that applies to each and every one of us. And you can see why the world might think that's attractive. There's no rules, right? You get to live by whatever standard you invent in your own mind and then you live by it. Uh, and, and so basically, if you're good with something, if, if, it's, if it's not offending your own morality, then, then that's fine. Uh, that's where evolution leads. It leads to giving you the freedom of where you want to or how you want to live today. But the cost is that there's no hope for tomorrow, right? Because evolution teaches that we are accidents. We are mistakes. If life is the result of random chance, that means there's no creator. And then all you have is today. You have no hope for a future. There's no ultimate meaning to life. Christ is not coming again. We have no eternal life. That's all bad news, right? Because 
it's a completely different worldview. Uh, if you want to live however you want to live today, evolution works fine. Uh, if you don't want to be subject to God, evolution works. But if you want uh, a God, and if you want eternal life, then you're going to need God. The evolutionary worldview is totally and completely incompatible uh, and inconsistent with the Christian worldview. If God didn't create, uh, then, the, the, then man is an accident. The Bible is not true. We are not sinners because we've made our own standard of right and wrong. Uh, Jesus is not eternally God. He's not uh, qualified to be our Savior, nor is he required to be our Savior because there's nothing for him to save us from. Uh, there's no eternal life with him. He's not coming again. When we die, we die. Now, that is a really hopeless worldview, which gives us hope maybe for today because we get to go and live like we like to, but does nothing for us for eternity. And so uh, that's why the doctrine of, found, uh, of creation is foundational to every other thing in the Christian worldview. We have to have a creator God, uh, and we have to have an eternal Jesus. Unfortunately, the apostles believed in God as the creator, and they believed that all things are subject to him, and they acknowledged his sovereignty, and that's why uh, they said what they said in verse 25. It's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they acknowledged God as sovereign creator of the universe, and then they acknowledged his sovereignty and worshiped God as sovereign over his creation. In verse 25, uh, what do they say here? When David spoke, he spoke by the mouth of the Holy Spirit. That's the very words of God. And so what do we have implicated here? Uh, we're talking now about inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility. Uh, inspiration of the Bible simply means that that God spoke through human authors, and he had these human authors write his very words using their unique personalities and circumstances and situations. And inerrancy means that the Bible is true in all that it says. It, it contains no error. And infallibility means that it can't be wrong because it's the word of God. Now, none of this should be surprising to us, right? I mean, if God has spoken, uh, obviously his words are true. They are inerrant. They are infallible. These are all just fancy words for what we all know in our hearts to be true. If God speaks and God is who God says he is, then, then his words are true. And when we acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God, we acknowledge the authority of scripture because we bow to the God who wrote it and we allow it to govern our lives. And that's what these disciples were doing here. This Old Testament that they refer back to over and over again was authoritative in their lives and pointed to present situations that they were going through. And so they quote Psalm 2 here in verses 25 and 26. Now, Psalm 2 was probably written at a time that David was being opposed by some foreign enemy, uh, but his, beyond his situation, it looked forward to a time when the enemies of Christ would oppose Christ and, and his church, and that's why the people who were praying uh, were using Psalm 2 and applying it to their own situation. And so the Gentiles uh, that raged were the Romans, and the peoples were the Jews, and the kings were represented by Herod, and the rulers by Pontius Pilate. And though these may all rage against the Lord and rage against his Christ, uh, Peter and John and the apostles had nothing to fear because nothing happens outside of God's will and outside of God's plan. Everything happens just as God plans. And so verse 27 and verse 28 uh, really blow my mind. I mean, there is no uh, other place in Scripture that I know of uh, that talks about the incredible sovereignty of God in, in all of Scripture than these verses. Herod, Pilate, uh, the Gentiles, and all of the peoples 
were acting of their own free will. They wanted to kill Jesus, and they succeeded in killing Jesus. And yet, all along, it was in, a, in accordance with God's plan uh, and what his hand and purpose had predestined to occur. Now, brothers and sisters, I cannot stand here before you and tell you that I understand this fully, uh, and I don't think any of us can. Uh, somehow, we have free will. If we didn't, then verses like Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took, it from, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Uh, how about 2 Peter 3.9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If we didn't have free will, none of those verses would make any sense. But yet at the same time, God is in complete control of everything. He is 100% sovereign. And that's what's so amazing. Proverbs 16:9: the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And this great one, of course, Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God gives us free will. Uh, if he didn't, then uh, if we were simply pre-programmed to love him, then everybody would be saved, and we know that not everybody is saved. And we know that God hates evil, but if he pre-programmed each one of us to do nothing but good, then there would be no evil in the world. Uh, yet somehow, in the exercise of our free will, no matter what we do, God uses everything that we do to make his purposes come to fruition completely, just as he wanted. Jesus could not crucify himself, right? He needed the work of sinful men to do that work. Uh, and God couldn't have planned and effectuated the atonement of Christ on the cross from the foundation of the world if he wasn't going to use man's evil acts to do it. Uh, and yet somehow our choices are, are free. Uh, so that may sound like something that is very troubling, but to me, it gives me great comfort. And I'll tell you why. It makes me sure that God has planned, what God has planned, he is able to carry out to completion. Philippians 1, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It makes me sure that there is nothing that can stop God's plan of bringing his elect to heaven. And so look at Romans 28, 29, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And finally, it makes me sure that even though Satan would like me to question my salvation, God tells me that my salvation is sure and no one can pluck me from his hand. John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What wonder to know that because of God's sovereignty, no matter what happens by the will of man, our salvation is secure because God is sovereign. 
So we have to balance God's sovereignty with human responsibility. If we only believe in a sovereign God uh, whose plans are unchangeable, then there would be no need to witness and there would be no need to work. Uh, Augustine wrote, uh, pray as though everything depends on God, but work as though everything depended on you. And I think that's a good way uh, to balance God's sovereignty and, and, and uh, our role in a world in which God is sovereign. So these apostles had a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God. They knew it was part of God's plan that his kingdom was going to be opposed. And we've seen that throughout 2,000 years of Christianity is that when the kingdom is opposed, that is when uh, the gospel grows uh, most fully. I think it was Justin Martyr who said, uh, the blood of the martyrs uh, is the seed of the church. And, and so uh, it's through persecution that the church grows. And, and these apostles recognize that, that God's plans are accomplished through and by the resistance and opposition uh, of the people. And, and they knew as a result that they had work to do in the face of this opposition that was going to be uh, becoming more intense now as the book of Acts progresses. So they prepared themselves, not by asking that they be protected from this opposition, but they, that they would be bold to speak as God would want them to do uh, in the face of it. And it's only after they had worshipped God that now they finally get around uh, to making a petition to God. And so let's look at what they ask for in verses 29 and 30. And we'll see here that a committed Christian prays under submission to God's sovereignty. Uh, verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the first thing they ask for, they ask for boldness. They wanted God to take note of their threats, but they didn't ask God to do anything about their threats. Just notice that they are threatening us. Uh, and then they asked that God would give them the boldness to continue preaching as they had been. Uh, in the face of their threats, they could have asked for protection, but they didn't because the most important thing was that God's will be done. Their lives were secondary to whether God's will is done or not. And so they asked for this courage to continue speaking boldly, even though they might be killed for it, even though it might be God's sovereign will that they might be killed for it. And that is how they show uh, their boldness, because they wanted the world to know that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, and that by believing in that, they can have eternal life, and, and they were completely submitted to God's sovereign will. And the second thing they asked for is that they asked for God to continue to perform miracles. You know, these apostles had spoken boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, but it was the miracles that gave them the opportunities to go out and preach. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and the people come rushing from all over the place, and that gives Peter an opportunity to preach. And then in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, raises up this man who has been lame from birth, and all the people come running again. They can't believe what they've seen. And again, this gives Peter an opportunity to preach. So they're not looking for these miracles for any other purpose except that the miracles uh, give them an opportunity to preach, and they authenticate the words that these guys are preaching. This Jesus who we are preaching He's able to raise the dead. He's able to raise the lame. Uh, this Jesus is somebody that you should follow. And, and this is why they're asking for this miracle, these miracles to be done, because the miracles give opportunity for, for preaching and boldness. 
And that's a wonderful prayer to pray. Uh, you know, we often want God to take care of our immediate felt needs, and, and sometimes our prayers are, are for us in that regard. Please take care of this problem that I have or that problem that I have. But uh, when we pray with boldness, that, that we would have boldness to go out and reach his people with his message, well, that's a prayer that God most certainly approves. And so we see here that a committed Christian is approved by God, verses, uh, verse 4, uh, 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, that's a way that God shows that he approves of their prayer. Uh, he shook the building uh, as proof that he was in their presence. And remember when Moses was on Sinai, the entire mountain shook uh, to show that God was present and that he approved And God gave them a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, a renewed awareness uh, that the Holy Spirit indwelt each one of them. And then he immediately answered their prayer by, listen to what happens. They begin to speak the word with boldness. And so immediately that prayer is answered. And if being released by the Sanhedrin was an encouragement, how much more of an encouragement is this here to have your prayer immediately answered, to know that you're in the presence of God and have God's approval, uh, I can't imagine anything more encouraging than that. And so uh, these guys were ready to take on the world. And that's just what they did as they continue to go out and preach the word uh, in, in the ensuing chapters. And so these are the marks of a committed Christian. How can we display these marks of a committed Christian in our lives? Well, the first thing that we can see is, is that we need to be courageous like they were. You know, Martin Luther King was assassinated 50 years ago uh, this very week on April 4th, and uh, he he knew that he would be. He used to say, I'm not going to live till 40, and his words were quite quite prophetic. He was gunned down at 39 uh, years of age, and uh, knowing that he was going to be killed for the message did not stop him. He went out with courage to preach this message of reconciliation and commitment to Jesus, and that drove him forward. He had incredible courage to do that, knowing that he could be killed at any moment. And we need that kind of courage too. And we get it. We get it from the Lord as we exhibit these marks of a committed Christian, uh, as we encourage other believers, and as we worship God and acknowledge his sovereignty, and as we pray in submission to his sovereign will, he gives us a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And he allows us to have this courage that we need to go out and witness to the world. So the first thing we need to do is, is just to be courageous. The second thing we need to do is to work together. You know, Christians working together can accomplish a whole lot. And we see that from this band of 12 disciples. I just told you earlier, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world now. So uh, people working together, hamathumadon, working of one accord, of one mind, uh, can do a whole lot of things. Have you ever seen ants work together? Uh, Ants are just the most amazing creatures. The things that they can do in a colony is amazing. Uh, They can kill prey many, many times their size. They can carry enormous things back to their nest when they work together. Uh, I've seen them build a bridge out of themselves, like from one stick in the water to another stick in the water, and then all the other ants cross on their backs. Uh, I've seen them uh, make a raft out of themselves so that they can get in a big circle together and float across water uh, from one place to another. Ants are amazing, the things that they can do together. And Uh, If God designed these ants with these capabilities, how much more do you think he's designed us to do when we work together 
working in community together for spiritual uh, results. Uh, these disciples and ants are a great model for us of what we can do if we work together uh, and, and with one mind for the kingdom of God. We can spread God's kingdom in Garland and beyond if we work together as a, as a colony. And so I pray that, that those of you whose talents I am not aware of, uh, let us know of your talents because we would love you to use your talents for the furthering of the kingdom in this church, in this area, as we try to reach this new neighborhood. So I'll, I pray that you'll volunteer those talents. And finally, we should be encouraged by God's sovereignty. When we are in the will of God, we are under his protective hand. And you may be in a difficult season of life right now, and yet you need to know that God is in control. God is not against us. God is for us. And whatever the world means for evil, God means it for good, and he will make good out of it. Nothing can separate us from God's love, and his plans for us are to become more like Jesus in this life. And when we get to pass from this life into the presence of our Father, we get to be with him forever and ever. His plans cannot be thwarted because he is sovereign, and that should be an encouragement for all of us as we think about the things that happen to us in our daily lives. Nothing happens to us that God doesn't allow, and he's going to use it uh, for his purposes. So I pray that we'll develop these marks of a committed Christian and, and that the Lord would use us mightily for his purposes. Now let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you. We, get, we just thank you for, for the testimony and the witness of these apostles, Lord, who, who struggled uh, against opposition daily, uh, whose lives were in danger daily, Lord. And we confess that uh, we don't know what that's like, Lord. Our lives have never been in danger. Uh, I think I speak for most, if not all of us, uh, for the sake of the gospel, Lord. And, and we would ask for the kind of courage that the apostles had so that we would not fear rejection of man or fear that uh, we do not have the goods to go out and preach the gospel as it ought to be preached, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage that we need, that we would display the marks of a committed Christian, and that we would go out and try and affect this world for good, affect this world for your kingdom, that we would help this world know your son, Lord, so that they might spend eternity with him. Lord, we ask for boldness, we ask that we would trust in your promises and trust in your sovereignty. Let us go do the work, Lord, and then let us trust you with the results. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.